0: And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore,
1: And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful Davis day. I'm not going to say sunny because somehow... I don't have much sun out here. I think that the sun must be lower in the sky or something. (laughs) What's going on with (laughs) that? It is
0: sunny without question across the Sacramento Valley here. You're probably being shaded by a tree or something. Who knows? Because it's going to be 92 degrees today here, September 13th, 2023, as Lois and I are preparing the show for broadcast on Thursday, September 14th. It's going to be 57 degrees tonight, the day of the show, 91. And then we're going, folks, into a cooling trend so thursday is going to be 91 thursday night 57 friday 88 friday night 57 saturday 86 saturday night 56 sunday 83 degrees sunday night by by the way the average temperature this time of year is usually around 90 so these are pleasant and unusually low temperatures sunday night about 55 monday 81 monday night 55 tuesday sunny with a high near 79 on tuesday extended discussion for next week um Got a low pressure system going to be setting up offshore. Expected increase along with south southwesterly winds up the Sacramento Valley through to midweek. And these gusts may be up to 20 miles an hour, but they're from the delta, so from there off the ocean. Cooler, locally breezy conditions can be expected in the Valley. Will help to modulate, as they say, temperatures which begin a gradual decline on Sunday. Valley high temperatures hovering around the 80s, low 90s in the Valley through the extended period. So cooler than average, nighttime temperatures in the mid-50s. People keep asking me, can we count on this going on? Because this is great. It feels like fall. And I say, we can't count on anything. But at least for the next seven to 10 days, it looks like it's not going to be very hot. So we know last year of this time, we were just recovering from an extraordinary heat wave, and we were about to go into a deluge. I don't know if you all remember this, but a we are. Rain like, heck, last September, in one day, we got, I don't know, three inches of rain right after we'd had the most high temper the highest temperatures that we'd ever experienced in the Sacramento Valley. It was certainly weather whiplash in September of 2022. September 2023 is going very nice and balmy. Great planting weather, excellent planting weather for fall and winter vegetables. I mean, I keep bringing them in. And I keep people keep asking. I say... The day or two that you get them in the ground, uh, if it's nice and mild like this, they'll take really, really well. So the, the coal crops, the brassicas, the ones we've talked about before, going in just fine. People are getting excellent results. Water thoroughly once, check them daily. They're not even really needing to water daily. We've moved on into the leafy greens, which are a little more vulnerable to high temperatures, the lettuce, the um, uh, well, kale and things like that, which, of course, are very popular. And I normally wouldn't be bringing them in to my garden center in the second week of September, because normally we'd be 90 degrees plus and uh, possibility of even higher. But at the rate things are going, people are happily planting kale, lettuce and moving on to some of the other cool season vegetables. And it seems at least for the next seven to 10 days, we're not going to have anything really extreme. No dry north winds, no very high temperatures such as we experienced last year.
1: So if they get those lettuces in the ground, Mm -hmm. and they take, they've been in the ground for a week, and what if our temperatures go back up to our normal, to our average 90? Is that going to harm
0: No, that's the interesting thing. It's the period of transplant there. They usually go through some shock. We would tell people that in early October, normally bringing them in because we can be hot and dry here all the way into mid-October. It's the period for three or four days after you transplant them that they're most vulnerable. Well, right now that three to four days is going to be just great. And from the looks of it right on into next week, if we get hot, they may stress a little bit. Obviously they need plenty of moisture. So these need to be kind of in your vegetable garden where you're watering frequently daily probably as you they get established which your summer vegetables which are waning perhaps don't need so generally it's best to have your cool season vegetables separately irrigated from your summer vegetables the only ones i'm concerned about um dill and cilantro which people ask for at this time of year for rather obvious reasons with dill because you've got a lot of cucumbers to process (laughs) so you want to make pickles cilantro likewise is a really important part of salsa for many people if they get a high temperature spike both of those my experience has been will be triggered to flower and so you buy a little plant of it and you put it in it gets 90 something degrees and just flowers right away which is pretty disappointing that's why we only typically stock cilantro at our garden center October November February March and you only get typically six to ten weeks out of cilantro in this climate it's really more of a coastal plant here in California and dill seems to be the same way they're triggered to bloom as far as I can tell by high temperatures or spikes of high temperatures or perhaps by fluctuating temperatures. It's hard to say exactly. In the case of lettuce, it isn't triggered to bloom by high temperatures. It's triggered to bloom by a certain number of hours of daylight. It's a day length, uh, not day length, but total accumulated daylight hours. So that's not affected by the high temperature. The flavor might not be great. The texture might not be great at first. They're not eating them yet. They're just planted. So I'm not as concerned about those, but if you are a big fan of cilantro, as you probably know, if you've ever tried to plant it before, It's a little marginal here because we're too extreme at both ends of the season, but we're getting close. I'm bringing it in. People are getting pretty good results so far. If we spike up high temperatures again, it'll probably bloom. Just plant some more. If you really like cilantro, either keep planting it or buy it at the local store.
1: (laughs) So when I first said it's a bright, beautiful, sunny Davis day, but there wasn't any sunshine, I've been noticing that The sun is at a much lower angle
0: in the middle
1: of the day than it it was in the middle of summer. And so I know that we have a certain amount of daylight, Mm -hmm. but we also have the, I guess my question is, in the summertime when the sun is straight overhead or as close as it gets, doesn't it fry the poor little plant's a lot more than when it's at an angle like this or does it make no difference
0: um I don't really know how to answer that question light intensity is greater in the summertime the angle of the light really matters more in terms of the placement of your vegetable garden which i kind of thought was the direction you were going with the question <laughs> so i don't um, have any place that gets
1: any yeah, sun at all yeah, so yeah, i don't worry about
0: right. that. Burning, burning a plant is a function of light intensity and low humidity primarily and uh, those things are changing in fact with respect to humidity i do need to mention this we had about 10 days a couple of weeks ago where we reached the dew point, which means there was moisture on the surface of leaves and vegetables earlier in the season than we normally see that. So we started to see leaf diseases like powdery mildew on verbena. We, someone brought in samples of downy mildew on their grape leaves, which is uh, can be a challenge, but it's more of a springtime problem ordinarily. Um, the We normally see those things mid-October into November, and they're just part of, oh, the garden is done. The season is changing. Don't worry about it. It's happening a little bit early. The main influence in your vegetable garden from that is that tomatoes, as they're ripening, are spoiling quickly. So if you've got a big old beautiful one and a half pound tomato out there, and it's almost fully ripe, you might want to pick it when it's almost fully ripe rather than waiting until it's fully ripe because all of us have had the experience of reaching in to pull off a very fully ripe tomato in October and it just goes gush in your hands because spoilage organisms have gotten in. Uh, If it's still perfect and the color is there, uh, the we are seeing a little more of those like soft rot type organisms hitting when the when the fruit is fully ripe and mostly a problem on tomatoes also sometimes on peppers and on eggplant. So just be aware that they're a little more vulnerable now to spoiling faster and they'll be safer to protect them you can take bring them in wash them off dry them set them on a towel or something right on your counter where they'll stay dry without a wet spot on the bottom so put something underneath them and they can sit there for two three four days getting very full soft ripe and even sweeter uh, if you leave them out on the vine you're taking a little bit of a risk because of those morning temperatures and that morning dew also in my garden, I figure the longer I leave them out there, the more likely it is that the nearby ground squirrels, turkeys and whatnot <laughs> might find them right the day I was planning to harvest them. So I do suggest as we get cooler and we have more incident incidents of dew in the morning, that it's probably better to harvest a little bit earlier than you ordinarily would have in this climate. We're very dry here throughout the summer vegetable garden season. Most of us are not accustomed to dealing with dew in the morning at all. And it's, attendant problems such as they are so just be aware of that one particularly for tomatoes because i went out there harvested a bunch and probably three or four of what looked like perfectly good tomatoes had begun to spoil on one side or the other
1: well i know that Tomatoes are climacteric. Oh, I love that word, Don. Yes. That's going to be one of my favorite words. <laughs> Meaning that as soon as they have some color, you can take them off and you can put them inside and they'll continue to ripen. Correct. Are peppers and eggplants also climacteric?
0: Yes, but we don't wait for eggplants to ripen to eat them. So that's a little bit different issue. They get kind of gross that way. Uh, People are actually eating them typically a little bit technically underripe peppers. Yes, peppers will go from green to red indoors and all peppers basically will Ripen red and become sweeter and more flavorful or in some cases possibly hotter i can't remember whether the capsaicin content increases as they ripen but in in the case of the sweetness and the flavor it certainly does and so i very frequently go out in october and harvest all my hatch peppers which is the one i use for for sauces and stuff and there's tons of them i usually have a very large basket of them spread them out on the counter so they're not touching each other as much as possible because it's best if if harvested fruit are not touching. That way, if one of them starts to spoil, it doesn't rapidly spread to the others to the greatest extent possible. Make sure there's not a damp spot underneath and that they're not contacting each other. And I'll let them sit there until I get around to doing something with them. And in the case of peppers, that can be as much as 10 to 14 days. Many of the ones that are green are just beginning to blush red, turn red in that time frame. So yes, they are climacteric and they do ripen further indoors. Just make sure. And this gets to a question that came into our, our mailbag. Um, make sure that they're not sitting with a moist spot on the counter on the bottom or in contact with the fruit nearby so you want to spread them out a rack is great some kind of a rack where there's airflow underneath them i don't always get around to that so i'll often just set down a dish towel set them on the dish towel so that that absorbs any moisture and move them daily, if need be, to keep them from getting a moist spot on one side and avoid any contact if you possibly can. It's, the, it's frustrating when you have a whole bunch of them, one starts to spoil that those bacteria that spoil it move quickly to the one that's next to it. And you can lose a lot of fruit that you've you know, gone to a lot of trouble to grow and harvest just because of how they happen to get stored. So with respect to a question we got about storage of summer vegetables, obviously, most of these are things we're going to process. We're going to do something with them. We're going to turn them into sauce or we're going to freeze them or whatever. But if you're trying to hold them as long as possible to use them more or less fresh, you know, as if they were fresh picked, just make sure that there's no point of moisture and no point of contact if you possibly can. So a drying or storing rack will be actually ideal for that. In the case of peppers, like hatch peppers, which are like Anaheim's and some of the others, they're mildly hot. They're used in a lot of cooking. If you don't use them right away, The moisture gradually evaporates from them and they dry and they're perfectly usable that way. As anybody who's fond of Mexican cuisine knows, you can dry peppers and use them later. So that works out fine if I don't get around to processing them as as sauce or salsa in their wet form. I can use them in the middle of winter in their dry form, and they still have much of the pungency and flavor that they had when you know when they were fresh. Not as much, but but plenty of it. So the drying peppers in a climate like ours, or Arizona, or New Mexico, or places where they're widely grown, that's why they're so popular. You can store them just by leaving them on your counter and they slowly dry. Just check them make sure there's no spoilage happening. And that just is a matter oftentimes of turning it over each day or shaking them up a little bit, or even better, setting them on some racks.
1: I know that some peppers are packed in oil. Mm-hmm. Do you do that with, do, do they need to be dried first or do you do that with the fresh peppers?
0: Those are usually dried, although those are usually special types of peppers that are pretty thin walled. If you store them that way, you, if you're using them right away, it doesn't make much difference. If you put them in there wet and, and, uh, and try to store them for a long time, they may start to spoil. It makes, what it really does, it makes the oil flavored like the peppers and hot like the peppers. So some very popular condiments are made that way. Or an, as another simple thing to do, and this is more common in humid climates, is to take them and just mash them into something and add uh, vine- vinegar or something that essentially stores them that way, vinegar and salt. Um, That is your basic Tabasco sauce, just for the record. Tabasco is a particular pepper, but it can be done with any pepper that's reasonably juicy, and that one is. Tabasco was originally grown um, in Louisiana by McElhaney Company down there. They make the Tabasco sauce. They long ago outsourced the growing of the peppers to Mexico, which is a perfect climate because that's where it came from originally, (laughs) from the Tabasco region of Mexico. They take them, they sort of smash them up with a bunch of vinegar and some salt. That's pretty much it. They kind of ferment them. They sort of semi-spoil them under controlled conditions and they purify it or drain it or strain it or whatever. And that's what you're buying is essentially peppers that have been preserved by means of vinegar and salt, which is a time-tested many centuries of using vinegar and salt to store things. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, that's done with them when they're still green bear in mind. Um, my parents went down to the McElhaney place down there in, in Louisiana. It's a, uh, where Tabasco is produced. It's uh, Avery Island. It's in the Delta. It's, I won't say swampy conditions, but it's Louisiana. There's never a dry time. There's never a time that you could hang those peppers out to dry. I have to assume that Tabasco sauce was created out of necessity because that's not a climate where you're going to be drying fruit very readily unless you use an actual literal dehydrator. The reason they were there, there's an amazing collection and grove of bamboo at the Tabasco-producing facility Mclaney family owns. Anyway, that was quite a digression. So.
1: It was. <laughs> Let's get back to, I don't know, the weather?
0: The climate. How about that? Let's uh, talk. Yeah. I keep, keep getting questions about El Nino because we have yeah, a very, a very yeah. strong El Nino developing. And, uh, you know, last winter, We were going into this very strong El Nino, and we had, what, 13 atmospheric rivers? I just lost count at some point. We had a lot of rain all over Northern California, all over the whole state of California. So, um, Dr. Swain, Dr. Daniel Swain, is your resource person on this, and if you're not on the site x formerly known as twitter he's there he's also in other places weather west is his blog and he discusses it in a post on september 5th and pointing out that it's very strong it's been contributing to the record-shattering global heat and hydrologic extremes that began in the spring are continuing uh one thing that everyone in california the us west wants to know he says how will this event affect regional hydroclimate this autumn and winter well he says expect it will but be- details are more uncertain than usual for an event of this magnitude very very strong el nino why it's not the only game in town he says highly anomalous record oceanic warmth is broadly distributed across northern hemisphere oceans not just in the tropical east pacific associated with el nino but also in the extra tropical north atlantic pacific and arctic oceans the ocean is very warm When it comes to geographically remote hydroclimate effects associated with El Nino, anomalous ocean temperature differentials, in other words, these much higher temperatures, matter more than the absolute warmth. It's the anomaly, and all this additional record ocean warmth greatly affects those differentials. In practical terms, there's a little more than the usual, already substantial uncertainty regarding what El Nino means for the western U.S. this coming winter. It's more uncertain what is going to happen. There is a decent chance of below average precipitation in the Pacific Northwest and British Columbia this fall, which would extend an already severe wildfire season there and potentially allow dry vegetation to align with strong offshore wind events if they occur. More fires up in the Pacific Northwest, drier conditions in winter are plausible in the pacific northwest uh, continuing and during this time the odds of wetter than average conditions in southern and central california will rise all right so that's mm-hmm. a good i guess if we want more water in our reservoirs here as noted, uncertainty regarding California winter conditions is especially higher than usual for a strong El Nino event of this sort. There will still be a tilt in the odds towards a wetter winter, but that's far from a slam dunk prediction, he says, because of those temperature anomalies. He'll have much more to say about this in weeks and months. We will update you as much as possible, but he says, quote, I want folks to keep in mind we've never observed The likely combination of a strong El Nino event concurrent with record warm, non tropical oceans in recorded history. So makes it harder to predict exactly what's going to happen here in Northern California and Northern California is already less predictable with respect to El Nino than the Pacific Northwest and the American Southwest so. That's where we stand on El Nino. It's going to be strong, but we don't know what it means. How's that? KDRT is community radio. That means we rely on contributions from listeners like you and me and Lois and everybody else to fund our operating costs. If you like what you hear, if you like the Davis Garden Show, That's Life, Jazz After Dark, or any of the other 30-plus locally produced programs at KDRT, head on over to KDRT.org and click on the support button button and you're there you'll find all kinds of great programming and let's take one of the public affairs shows this is what we call public affairs news talk all that kind of stuff how about eye on sports a talk radio show focused on various professional and amateur sports with a concentration on local athletics the hosts Chuck and Cody have been involved with sports both nationally and locally for more than 10 years. Want to bring their opinions and discussion points to the public through concert conversation, outside interviews and investigation. This show will not be politically driven in any way locally or nationally, they say. The conversation will be around the social environment, business side, strategy and psychology of sports. Our goal is to create a lighthearted conversational environment to talk sports with the best of them. ION Sports is live Fridays from 4 to 5 p.m. Most of the programs at KDRT rebroadcast at various times during the week. So for the rebroadcast schedule, just click on the schedule guide.
1: And then we have things that are happening in town. And I have a letter here from Elizabeth Hirsch, who's with mm-hmm. uh, Tree Davis, saying Tree Davis has some fun volunteer events coming up this month. And we will for you to share them with your listeners. Saturday, September 16th, Barovetto Park Stewardship Event from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. Saturday, September 30th, Memorial Grove Stewardship Day from 9 a.m. till noon. Event signups are available at our website, so go to treedavis.org and look for the calendar.
0: And uh, Arboretum, I always want to mention the sales. Just see, mark them on your calendar. There's three plant sales this fall, September 30th. These are all on Saturdays, September 30th, October 21st, and November 4th. Arboretum.ucdavis.edu.
1: All right. Well, the next thing I want to talk about is the fact that it is... September 14th, when this air is being broadcast. And that means that I am looking at the September calendar because I love looking at the calendar. Ston has pictures of plants and he's taken all these pictures in September. So I went and I looked at it and I looked at it and I looked at it and I went, you know, I have a plant outside my house that's not on here and has (laughs) never been on here, but it's blooming now beautifully. So I want to talk About the spider lily. Now, Don, what is that Latin name for the spider lily?
0: nerini n-e-r-i-n-e Narini. there's a bunch of species of the genus nerini at uh, functions if you all know the naked lady bulb amaryllis belladonna uh, one of my friends was just spent a week over in mendocino county lucky her and was taking pictures over there and took pictures of the hundreds thousands of them that have naturalized on the slopes and and gardens and around the, the houses over there in the mendocino area that's amaryllis belladonna it is called naked lady because it comes up in the fall, grows through the winter, dies down in the late winter, early spring. There's nothing there. You you should be able to see the top of the bulb. That's about it. And then, boom, in July, August, up pop these long uh, flower stalks. And at the end of them are these beautiful pink flowers. They're mostly medium pink. You'll find in a seedling stand, some lighter and some darker. But that's pretty much it. And they multiply very freely here in the valley. They're called Naked Lady because they bloom without foliage. Well, they're not the only bulb that does that. They're just probably one of the better known certainly here in California, but what Lois is talking about is Nerini or spider lily, and there's a bunch of different species, Um, generally red. There are also pink ones, and they do the same thing. They put their leaves out, and they do all their growth, and they store all this energy in the bulb, which they then use to put up their flowers in the dry season, and so they're blooming when there's no foliage there, which is curious to people. They don't really understand how that can work. These are tough bulbs, both of them, the Amaryllis belladonna and the Nerini. I don't know how long ago you planted that spider lily. Two
1: years, a year and a half.
0: Okay. And uh, I've had people plant them and they sort of disappear into the garden. They forget about them and they go out there five years later, up they pop and they're blooming in in late summer, early fall. Uh, So it's a cool bulb in that regard. Very drought tolerant. I really wish that more designers, if you're listening, landscape architects, bulbs should be part of your landscapes that you're putting in because they fit beautifully in california native landscapes there are california native bulbs you can use Neither of these things are california natives they're both from South Africa, but there are native bulbs that can be used or non-native ones that can be used in low-water landscapes where you're encompassing Mediterranean plants, plants from Australia, plants from South Africa, lots of really drought-tolerant bulbs from South Africa. And here in California, we have a lot of bulbs we can use uh, that can't be used in colder climates, Crocosmias and Tritelias and Montbretias and things like that. These are plants that spread. I mean, if you've got a, a new landscape and you're putting in Ceanothus and Gravelias and Salvia's and things, you've got some big open areas between them, fill in with some of these. And I mean, two or three bulbs every eight or ten feet will be fine in the long run because they will multiply and increase. Uh, the Narini that she's talking about is hard to find. Uh, Lycoris is the other one. Lycoris squamigura, it, it's a similar, squamigura if you prefer, a similar summer blooming bulb that has you know growth season is totally opposite from the bloom they fit beautifully with low water shrubs and other perennials Uh, so they they are a perennial bulbs are perennials but we always forget them we silo them off. We, When we're designing things, we don't put bulbs in because, I don't know, bulbs are uh, flowers or something. People don't really think of them the same way. They really should be incorporated into big open areas. You've got a lot of mulch out there. Bulbs are fine with that. And they fit right in with the, the rest of these low-water landscapes that many people are converting their front lawns to.
1: So when we're talking about spring-blooming bulbs, mm-hmm. I know that you get them and then you plant them in the fall and then they come up in the spring. But how do you handle these? Now, I'm, I'm thinking, I know about naked ladies, and I know the story of naked ladies says, if you're going to share with your neighbor, uh, dig them up just as soon as they stop blooming. Because if you do it at any other time of the year, then they'll be out of cycle and they won't bloom for another three years. Correct.
0: Correct. Yes. And let's talk about that. This right now, if you're in the Sacramento Valley, this is the time. Uh, we're digging them up for customers who want them. I have a lot of them on my property, so I tend to do that, dig them up and, and sell them to them. And they, uh, they, uh, uh, if they don't get them back in the ground right away, if you try to pretend these are like daffodils and plant them in November, December, they'll grow fine, but it'll be fine. Four or five years before they bloom again so that's the one important thing you need to know about them the other is we don't bury these as deep as we do regular bulbs we put them so the neck is out of the ground so they're just at ground level not underground otherwise they will grow and grow and grow and grow and and not bloom likewise so the key is to get them now if you possibly can now the lycoris and the Nerini, the two bulbs that we're talking about the uh, spider lily or similar things are hard to find so you're probably going to order them from a mail order company. You're probably going to receive them in who, late fall or could be spring. Who knows? Plan them anyway. Just don't hold your breath about when they're going to bloom. They will be fine. They'll come back. They'll come back into cycle eventually. But the best time to get these, if you can find a source on them, like someone who has some, is to get them right as they finish the bloom. Then they don't miss a beat. They go into the ground, they put out their foliage when the rains come and they bloom for you the next year or at least the year after. So just be aware of that little bit, because the bulb industry doesn't know how to handle these things. The bulb industry is focused on tulips and daffodils and hyacinths and crocus and all those, you know, northern latitude bulbs that uh, the Dutch do so well at. Well, these are not grown there. These are too tender to grow in those kind of climates, believe it or not. Considering how vigorous they are here, it hardly seems they could be tender somewhere else. But we're talking cold tender. So that goes for some of the others I mentioned in Crocosmias and Montbarishias and stuff. They're kind of hard to find, too, because they don't fit into the production and marketing cycle of flower bulbs. You're going to have to find them at specialty growers. Get them from a friend who has some that have just finished blooming. You know, that's the way to do a lot of these bulbs.
1: So with these bulbs that bloom in the, in the fall, the naked ladies and these two we're talking about, do I have to be worried about not watering them during the summer? Like if I have a bush nearby and I water the bush and the bulb gets wet, is it going to rot out or anything?
0: No, they're fine with irrigation or not. I mean, the Amaryllis belladonna, I have experience with it in every possible situation. When we first bought our rural property where we live, my mother brought me a sackload of them. I've told this story before. We just walked around and threw them out and planted them where they landed. She had brought us about a 100 Amaryllis bulbs, and uh, that was 35 years ago. And they're everywhere. They're in full sun they're in full shade. They're irrigated, they're not irrigated. Then every permutation of those combinations that you can think of, and they do just as well in every situation. So this is a plant that is quite indifferent as to summer irrigation and does very, very well here. Uh, And so do the two that we've been talking about, the Nerini and the Lycoris. So they're just tough bulbs and they're very adaptable. They're the kind of thing, as I say, you don't typically see in garden centers because they simply don't, work in the marketing of bulbs but they are something you can find from specialty growers or from your friend who has some in their backyard
1: what about those crosses with the the naked ladies and other things oh,
0: those are great so- yeah those are some of my favorite plants the amaryllis has been crossed with crinum in particular crinums, mm-hmm. and that's a cool plant one of my neighbors I have to say that one of my neighbors in San Diego was doing that hybridization in the 60s and 70s. It's quite possible that his plants were the ones that started the whole thing because he was quite well known in in the circles. So he crossed Amaryllis with Crinum and came up with the Amarocrinum. So I've been aware of this plant since I was like 14. And they make, uh, they don't go dormant like the amaryllis does. They function more like a crinum. And they have a flower that's intermediate. Crinum lilies are massive. I have some of them that I got from my grandfather in the 1970s. So I've had these plants for 50 plus years and they're going strong. Giant bulb, big white flower, three foot high leaves, five foot high flower spike. So that's what the crinum murii does. There's lots of other species of crinum. They crossed that with amaryllis belladonna and came up with crinum, which functions between them They're she there's pink red and white available they don't go fully dormant they're very drought tolerant and they're very tough and they bloom on the same cycle of mid to early well in their case midsummer a little earlier than the amaryllis do and there's lots of fascinating hybrids with amaryllis it turns out to cross very readily with other members of the same family so uh, you're going to start seeing or we're already seeing from some of our growers different different combinations
1: Buddleia. We yeah. talked about Buddleia the other day, and Budlia davidii is the usual one that, that most people know. Um, I like Buddleia alternifolia, and you said there's a whole lot of other species there. So, hey, listeners, Don sent me the best picture. It is shockingly orange flowers. I mean, it doesn't look anything. Like a budlia, but it's really, really pretty. And then the leaves are this uh, silvery white, this fuzzy green, just amazing. About the color of Powis Castle.
0: Tell us about this, Don. Powis Castle is an Artemisia with silvery foliage. And um, I got this plant, Buddleia maruba i mentioned a buddleia from texas in the last program couldn't remember which species it was that's it buddleia marubifolia. i don't have a source on it anymore got it a couple years ago from a grower who appears to have discontinued it maybe they'll take it up again but i know that budlia is root really easily so i'm going to start taking cuttings of this this is from texas as i Nen- mentioned and there's a lot of plants from the american southwest that are slowly working their way into california landscapes and nurseries and uh, we should be aware of them because these are generally if they're from west texas arizona new mexico or southeastern united states extremely heat tolerant reasonably drought tolerant but they generally have one other characteristic they're from places where it does rain sometimes in the summer sometimes a whole lot all at once and my experience with southwestern natives is they seem to be actually better adapted here in the valley to our denser richer soils many of the california native plants that are in the trade from let's say the coastal zones or the southern california chaparral or the foothills of the sierra these are plants that can tolerate a little more moisture they just don't seem to be as vulnerable to the crown rot and root rot problems that we get with california natives so it may well be that many of these southwestern natives are are things you should start exploring especially if you're designers or, or putting in a new landscape and you want to do plants that can go with very low irrigation but also can tolerate late season rains like we get sometimes in May or occasional irrigation because of other plants that are in the landscape. Buddleia marubifolia, silver foliage, my plant in three years has gotten to about five feet. If you've ever grown Buddleia davidii, the butterfly bush in three years, it gets 10 feet. (laughs) The, The dwarf types, five feet, but the old fashioned kinds get bigger. It's a more attractive, compact plant. And that silver foliage is actually, as Lois mentioned, very similar to Artemisia, the sagebrushes, to some of our native sages. It actually is in my landscape right near an Artemisia and a Cleveland sage, which is one of our California native sages and makes a great combination with all that silver foliage. Very, very attractive to hummingbirds, butterflies, bees, you name it. It has a flower cluster that looks like a budlia when you look at it closely, but most people looking at this plant. From a distance and without the background information would probably not think of it as a buddleia if you look up the genus buddleia in wikipedia b-u-d-d-l-e-j-a is the correct spelling of it usually uh, people substitute an i for the j Um, you'll find many 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 species and uh, the one that has become wildly popular of course is buddleia davidii and the new hybrids of it and other species that are sterile have become even more popular and the dwarf sterile versions have become Still more popular because they don't recede in places where Buddleia has become invasive. But look around and you might find Buddleia alternifolia, which Lois mentioned, big, arching, beautiful background shrub that has flowers all along the branches, not just at the end, like normal Buddleias do. And things like this, Buddleia marubifolia. Southwestern specialists are likely to have it. And if you get one, they root quite easily. So that's the way to increase it. But look for some of these others. And, you know, looking around at other plants from the American Southwest, a couple others have worked their way into the nursery trade and become very, very popular. Uh, Texas ranger, Leucofilum. Leucofilum, there's a couple different species. And when we first planted them, there was a gray leafed one and it was a slow grower and it would bloom intermittently. Very pretty, but, you know, not vigorous enough for a lot of people. Um, One nursery came out with Green Cloud, I think is the name of the Leucofilum frutescens that they came out with. It's not got the silver foliage. It's more of a gray green towards the green end of things. My plant of this, uh, two plants of this, are now see, planted in 2016. They're now seven feet high, seven feet across each. They have waves of bloom. For about a week, you have this massive bloom where the plant is completely covered with these magenta purple flowers that have a slight scent to us. They are covered with bees, not just European honeybees, but all kinds of bees when they're in bloom. And then they stop. And you think, OK, it's done. A couple months later, it does the same thing. I have pictures of this blue plant in bloom every Couple of months and it continues to do that. In fact, I am told that in um, some parts of the country it's called barometer bush. Okay. What? <laughs> barometer why, bush. Why
1: barometer?
0: They are legendary for their ability to, quote, forecast and, quote, rain, usually blooming several days prior to a rainstorm, apparently in response to humidity. So they're sometimes called barometer bush for this reason it is believed to be a survival trait in the plant's semi-desert habits. I don't know if that's true, but it's in Wikipedia, so it's got to be.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and we wouldn't we wouldn't be able to test that because we don't get humidity here.
0: Well, we do. I haven't noticed whether this correl- corresponds with that. Mine is blooming right now, and we did have a lot of humidity a couple of weeks ago. But, you know, one anyway, I, I'll just take that as an apocryphal um, uh, observation by some people in places where humidity is more noticeable than it is here typically. But it's a great but- shrub for this area. I put these in, and uh, as I say, several years ago, irrigated them. They're in a bed with Western redbud, ceanothus. Red rock roses, which are from the Mediterranean rosemary, of course, things like that. So I irrigated that bed for the first three summers uh, with a drip system that I ran very deeply every couple weeks and then gradually I just stopped doing that and it has been irrigated once this year total that's been a pretty mild summer by our standards but nevertheless it's looking great and it's on the county road where it gets dust and gravel and stuff and it's absolutely fine and it goes into this massive bloom every couple months all at once so leukophyllum is a group you should look at leukophyllum frutescens is probably the best for the home gardener and this particular one called green cloud is astonishing grower I would like to see more of this going into low water landscapes and it's very compatible with our California natives, basically adaptable to the exact same rainfall cycle as California native plants, but more tolerant probably, and certainly by my experience, of summer irrigation as well. So Texas Ranger and Buddleia marubifolia. I'll see if I can find a common name for that one, but try to remember Buddleia marubifolia.
1: So I'm looking at uh, things that have come into the mail and we got a, a question from Mime and she's asking, how to store the various uh, vegetables that she's harvesting.
0: But the summer vegetables do differ. I have lots of customers and friends who are very heavy into food processing, and I've done it myself. One of the most useful things you can get is a dehydrator, just for the record. I mean, that's one of the simplest ways to process. Here in our climate, nature is your dehydrator. You can cut (laughs) tomatoes in half, put them on on a, a screen, put it out in the sun, literally directly in the sun, Cover it with cheesecloth if you've got a problem with bugs or birds, but I have never actually had a problem with bugs or birds when I've done this. Watch for ants. Those can be an issue. So if you have that, the table that they're on, each leg of that table needs to be in a bowl of water. That will solve that problem. And then they only take anywhere from 24 to 72 hours on a sunny day here in September to dry, And even into October, you can do that typically for the first couple weeks. Dried tomatoes are amazing. If you've ever cut them in half or quarters and dried them, they're incredibly useful later in the winter because they're very intensely flavored. You just throw a few into your soup or stew or whatever, and they give it that whole rich summer flavor. Uh, And dehydrating peppers, of course, you can do it right on the counter or out in the sun, but you can also do it in a dehydrator. And lots of other things can be dehydrated. I have lots of customers that use it for their summer fruits and so forth. So the key is while you're waiting, don't just leave them in a big bowl. I've done this, made this mistake myself. Don't leave them in a big bowl sitting on the counter, you know, metal bowl or something where there's moisture on the fruit on the bottom and it starts to spoil and that rapidly goes to the others take some time to spread them out dish towels or screens like we talked about before but a dehydrator can be one of the most useful things you have obviously for some things like cucumbers pretty much all you do if you aren't going to eat it right away is turn it into pickles or relish they don't dehydrate well never had dehydrated cucumber chips give it a try let us know how it goes but uh, for the rest of it, that would be
1: an interesting thing to, to use, like you would slice your tomatoes and dry them and try yeah, that with the
0: cucumbers. People do that with all kinds of things. And there's a lot of fruit that you wouldn't think of as being suitable for dehydrating. But when uh, there was a, a sales rep for Dave Wilson Nursery who would come around regularly, and he was a real promoter of storing fruit and having it available year-round, he'd walk in and hand us something and say, try this, tell me what you think. And we'd bite into it and go, that's amazing. What is it? Asian pear that he had put in the dehydrator here try this oh that's got to be a persimmon look at that pattern yes they're incredibly rich flavored when you dehydrate them including uh, the, the fuyu can be dehydrated hachia you should probably continue to use that for puddings and cookies and things like that because it's soft and gross but the fuyu can be sliced with that amazing pattern they have on the inside of the fruit and dehydrated and it's quite delicious that way so don't hesitate to try different things you wouldn't think of apple chips people have heard of asian pear chips nobody would heard of that they were quite good he said at a fruit tasting they went to it was the thing everybody talked about not just because they were really good but because they'd never thought of it before so a dehydrator is your friend and as i say in many cases here in the sacramento valley or anywhere where it says dry low humidity all the way into october as it is here you can just do a lot of that right outside so
1: um i have a, a message from jane she's up in fair play california right, right. up the hill a little bit Uh, My Santa Rosa plum is confused. It thinks (laughs) it's spring and it's flowering. She sent her pictures of the flowers. Oh, how I wish that were true. (laughs) Then I might get a crop of plums after all. The weather several months ago prevented pollination. I got four fruit. In a year, I thought I was finally going to get plentiful fruit so what's going on with this poor little santa rosa plum
0: well first of all the four fruit uh that situation prevailed much of california it was rainy when we have 13 atmospheric rivers and it rained right on through the bloom period of the early blooming fruit trees especially the plums i had plums and pluots that had zero fruit on them my santa rosa gave me plenty but the pluot right across the path gave none and uh, that hat that was also true for a lot of peaches and nectarines and then the one you know this peach had none the one next to it had loads of fruit the next one had 20 so that was weather related that's why you didn't get fruit we always get some flowers on deciduous plants in September here and there not always on the same ones, but I always get this question about things uh, someone sent me a picture of their redbud western redbud has a few flowers well now that's a spring flowering thing not a fall flowering thing and I've had it uh, when I would bring in forsythias to sell at my garden center they almost always pop a few blooms in the fall most of these are deciduous plants that initiate their fruiting wood in midsummer, and uh, the flowers go into a quiescent the plant goes into a quiescent period it's not growing it's forming flowering wood and flower buds and then they normally days get shorter temperatures get lower plant goes dormant those flower buds are ready to go when they've met their requisite chilling hours in the spring but in response to stress or extremely weird weather fluctuations some of them will pop open This is what happens. And we get questions about apricots and plums and it typically is the fruit trees that have a relatively low uh, uh, chilling hours requirement. Well, they're certainly not getting their chilling hours met. So this is a response to some kind of stress ordinarily and ordinarily we assume drought, but it can also be in response to unusual weather fluctuating weather conditions, sudden cold temperatures, sudden high temperatures and so forth. That's all we know. It doesn't hurt the plant and it's not all your blooms fortunately typically and those that do set they're not going to develop properly so you know don't worry about them they'll just probably fall right off but it is uh, can be a sign of drought stress so that's one thing is to make sure that you're still deep watering your fruit trees not shallow light little drip irrigation type watering but deep soaking every 10 to 14 days if your soil can hold that much moisture whatever your soil conditions allow for you to do for a deep watering intermittently should still continue through September, generally in most parts of California until the middle of October, unless we get, like last year, a weird rainstorm.
1: Talking about red buds, I have a picture that Don sent me that is a red bud. All the leaves on it are, well, they're dead brown. It's not like it turned into a fall color or something that they're not falling off. They're just all of a sudden they died. Yes. What's going on with this?
0: It's mine. That's my red bud, and it's about six, seven years old. It's in a the same bed we were talking about with Texas Ranger, uh, where I watered to establishment and cut back on the irrigation. So it's only been irrigated once this summer, which is generally fine with Western redbud. And very abruptly, one side of the plant died. And this is a problem with Western redbud. So when we're talking about trees for this area, uh, people often ask, what about redbud? And I say, well, there's a couple of problems with redbud. And I have had this confirmed by the superintendent emeritus of the UC Davis Arboretum. If you buy a redbud and stake it like a tree, just when it's beginning to really look like a tree, that part of it will die. It's just, his, he says this is his guarantee. Um, that's not his words, but pretty much what does tend to happen. Western redbud, Circus or Circus occidentalis, C E R C I S. Occidentalis is a native plant foothills of the Sierras, I believe up in the coast range, uh, particularly in the Sierra foothill and could happen here, I suppose, on the valley floor. Uh, It grows fine. It's very drought tolerant, gives you beautiful blooms in the spring, but it is very vulnerable to Phytophthora and a couple of other diseases, uh, true true fungus that attack a branch or a main trunk or whatever. And it's very frustrating when it happens. I'm simply I showed you that picture and I'll try to remember to post this one with the show uh, where half of the plant died. Now, I'm just going to go in, cut that out clean. By the way, this happened in July, not in an irrigation period, not in a rainy period, normal summer weather. Abruptly, half the plant died and it looks like classic Phytophthora. I hope it's not because that means the whole plant might go. But it could be Phytophthora or it could be one of these other pathogens. Very common on Western Redbud, they grow out of it, but you don't want to train it as a tree and suddenly lose your main trunk. So Western Redbud should be grown as a shrub. That's what it wants to do anyway. It's never really a tree here in the Valley. So when it's on tree lists, I get concerned because I don't want people to think it really is. Western Redbud is a nice shrub to mix in with other low water plants. Being aware that sometimes the whole part of the plant, or maybe the whole plant, <laughs> will die. And that's a challenge for me as a retailer to sell you a plant and say, oh, by the way, should go along fine but five six years in you might lose half the plant as just happened to me people need to be aware of that it's a frustrating thing about western red but if you want a red and you want that color and you want something that will actually be a tree we highly recommend the oklahoma red bud it's a cultivar of the eastern red bud that's adapted to hotter and drier conditions naturally grows as a tree typically and does not seem to suffer from this dieback problem so i just want to mention that one it's a frustrating thing when it happens don't stop planting western red buds but be aware I couldn't have prevented this. There's nothing I could do that would have prevented this because I wasn't overwatering it, that's for sure. And uh, it wasn't summer rainfall that caused it, it just got hit by this particular pathogen that we tend to have in our denser, heavier soils.
1: All right. I have a couple of questions here. And these are things that people have asked of Don Is it time to plant winter squash?
0: That was a good what? one. We get winter it every Winter squash? Yeah, and I. this is a funny one. Uh, winter oh. squash, yeah, winter squash refers to squash that we grow in the summer and store for the winter. Good example, Hubbard squash, um, uh, acorn squash. Uh, think of some others, I'm sure. But because they're commonly <laughs> called winter squash, novice gardeners in many cases think oh great we have a squash that we can grow in the winter and someone who just moved here from the east coast just walked in she was looking at the seed rack and going do you have winter squash this by the way is why i pull seeds off that are not seasonal from my seed rack and if it's on the seed rack at my nursery it's time to plant it no winter squash on there because we plant winter squash in the late spring early summer it grows through the summer we harvest it and we can store them in those dehumidified root cellars or in our case sitting on the kitchen counter for weeks and weeks and weeks right on through the winter they have a hard uh, skin and they have a waxy coating over it and so like a pumpkin which is classically a winter squash actually uh, you can store them and use them in January February they hold right on through the winter and they don't deteriorate in quality either Um, it's kind of funny and she felt a little chagrin and I said you know what I have to tell you a story the public relations person for the California Association of Nursery Professionals used to send out newsletters for us as retailers to make use of, send us merchandising and marketing information. They did a newsletter. We could put Redwood Bar Nursery on it and send it out as if it was ours. And to our great amusement, at one point she put on there in the fall, time to plant winter squash. We gave her a really hard time in the next board <laughs> meeting about that. <laughs> winter squash but we all need to call them something else
1: storable cross
0: there you storable. go she was very amused so i uh, didn't feel quite so stupid when she left because this is common in the trade i've had employees when they would see the term winter squash do you plant this in the winter no okay next
1: what do i do about these holes in the leaf of my red bud something is eating it yeah now that that depends on what the holes look like because i know that on one of the red buds in our in our Quaker meeting house, we get leaf cutter bees that come and make a circle up from the edge. Right. And it's a, it's a perfect circle. And they're right. all the same size. I don't know why, but I, I assume it's because that's the size of the nest or something.
0: That's no, the size of the bee she's sawing that out with her legs and backing around and doing it and if however big she is that's the circle she can make uh, we get two things that cause holes in, in red bud leaves it seems like it's a theme today is problems with red buds but this one's not really a problem this is just an interesting thing uh, perfect holes like look, looks like someone took a paper punch to it but it's always on the edge going in is the alfalfa leaf cutter bee or possibly one of the other two or three actually native leaf cutter bees but far more commonly the introduced alfalfa leaf cutter bee which was introduced to pollinate alfalfa which is a big crop here in the sacramento valley and all throughout california and uh, it's an important uh, pollinator it's a small bee you would almost never see it i've seen them but it's rare for a home gardener to see them about half the size of a honeybee not nearly as distinctly marked not you know the coloration and so it's um, um looks sort of like a hoverfly more than a bee really but it's a bee it's capable of stinging i've never heard of anyone being stung by one it's a solitary bee so they're not living in a hive or an underground nest they make their nests in, oh, the bamboo stake that's hollow on your plant, or in our case at our nursery, the siding on the building. You can see these little holes for old nail holes, and they quickly discovered those where we'd pulled out a nail. They go in there and they go down into the siding and make it in there. And they're taking that little piece of the leaf back and lining their nest with it for where their larvae are. It goes on for about six to eight weeks. The same bee goes back to the same plant over and over. So it can really take a lot of foliage off but it's usually not harming it all that much i mean we've literally had a row of red buds in our nursery where there's five of them in a row and it's going back to the same one in the same can so we just took that one and set it to the back of the row and said here that's yours we're not going to sell that one these are available for the customers please you take yours we'll take ours and it worked fine that they aren't going to move on to others nearby and when they're done lining their nest and they go into their their stage of brooding, uh, it, this problem stops. So this is a beneficial insect. We don't do anything about it. If the leaves look torn, if the holes look ragged, or if they're just gone, that's probably the red humped caterpillar, which comes shows up first here typically June, July, and uh, we can have as many as five to 10 generations of it, more commonly four to five, but we have a lot of them. They hatch out all at once from a mass of eggs that's on the underside of a leaf. You'll find them on walnuts, cherries red buds Uh, i've seen them on other trees and they immediately start feeding and as we know caterpillars are very hungry and eat a lot and at first they're little tiny things so they skeletonize the leaf and then quickly they eat the whole leaf they begin to spread down the branch but they're all localized on the tree And they do a lot of damage as you as you watch the foliage disappear from this one branch well you walk up there you'll find them and you can remove them or by that time they're probably ready to pupate and and move on to their next stage of development birds will eat a lot of them if you have a young tree getting a lot of damage probably worth using the organic bt spray that's specific for caterpillars other than that usually a tree a healthy tree can sustain a lot of injury from them and it only goes on for two three four weeks and then they're done for that Cycled, But if you do have them one year, you should probably monitor at least a younger tree in the future and perhaps spray when you first see them. The spray we're talking about is the organic Bacillus thuringiensis spray. Works very well, but they have to feed on it. So it's not a preventative. You have to first see the skeletonized leaves, then spray, then they feed on it, then it kills just the caterpillars.
1: You have a new pistache tree, red push. Mm-hmm. Now, is that better than the male cultivar of pistache that we've been buying? And does it have the same fall color?
0: Yes, it has the same fall color. Better is a relative term. Um, it's very similar to the pistache that we've been selling for years, the Keith Davy male cultivar. Male meaning you don't get fruit litter from either of these. Red push is a new one that's a different parentage than the Chinese pistache, which is one of the things we at Tree Davis think is important because we want to get more species diversity into the landscape. So that's a big difference right there. This is a a Inner specific cross of two other species in the genus Pistachio. Grows like Keith davy pistache, bright red fall color, no fruit. One big difference is it has a big flush of red new growth in the spring. So that's where the name red push comes from. So that's another feature of it. So we're encouraging people to consider it as they're choosing trees. They like Chinese pistache. Think about this one so that we get. To some different parentage of trees out in the landscape and you get the benefit of that spring color otherwise just as drought tolerant low litter and apparently just about as big it appears to be a little tighter growth habit in the long run but other than that it's going to look pretty much like keith davy bright red chinese pistache except also with some nice red coloration in the springtime
1: okay, okay. one more question from the mailbag is there an organic weed killer that works like Roundup. Now, remind us what Roundup is and how it works.
0: Well, Roundup is a brand, so this becomes a complicated question, but most Roundup products contain glyphosate, which is the best-known active ingredient. Now, the company that makes... Roundup brand has also come up with some Roundup products that do not contain glyphosate. So it's a little confusing. So generally when someone asks this question, I assume they mean, is there something like glyphosate, which is a systemic herbicide goes in through the leaves or through the stems in some cases, down into the plant uh, and kills it roots, crown, growing points, and all. So it's a systemic herbicide that kills the plant completely, depending on the rate of application, concentration, and so forth. But generally speaking, really thoroughly kills the plant and has become very popular over many years for use on perennial weeds that are otherwise rather hard to control there is no organic systemic weed killer the organic weed killers are generally derived from acetic acid or other plant products like that or a variety of other methods fatty uh, potassium salts of fatty acids and so forth all they typically do is strip the protective coating off the leaf and if that leaf is in full sun it fries so it's comparable to cutting off the foliage and if you spray it again and again and again the plant can't re-sprout and you can eventually kill out many plants by doing that generally speaking though these organic herbicides that are derived from natural materials are just top kill type things they do a great job on the weeds in your brick path that you can't pull out they do a pretty good job on things in the driveway and in areas where it's just open just by burning them just burning the top down basically letting the sun burn the plant to more or less to death. But if it has any storage, any kind of growing points down in, at the ground level or a bulb or a rhizome that can resprout, it will resprout, just as if you cut the plant back. So they're comparable to hoeing the plant repeatedly. And if you're willing to do that, these can be effective in certain situations. But none of them act systemically the way glyphosate does. This usually comes up in the context, I'm getting this question now, it's September, I want to kill my lawn and plant low water plants. Excellent. Would have been better to start that in July because if you're not going to use the Roundup or glyphosate from other companies, Roundup is just one company product. There's lots of other glyphosate products out there. Then you'll need to kill the lawn some other way. And if the lawn includes anything like Bermuda grass or Sedge, It's going to be a long process and so generally we suggest starting the lawn replacement process early to mid-summer so you can use solarization or mulching or cardboard layering whatever it is you're going to choose to do and give it enough time to kill out those harder to kill weeds the tougher ones over several weeks and then you can go in and plant but i do want to refer you to this excellent publication that covers all the different aspects using non-selective herbicides using the Uh, using the uh, sheet mulching, using solarization, ucanr.edu, Yolo County Master Gardeners, How to Remove a Lawn. I will try to post a link to this one at one of the places that we do that kind of thing, but you can find it pretty easily. Master Gardeners are all pretty easy to find their publications online. For every situation, there's a weed that adapts to it. You will get the ones that blow in root rapidly through the 10 inches of uh, wood chips and into the soil below and then spread out on top of the mulch. So you obviously have to monitor for that. I've seen purslane do that. I've seen Spurge do it. Oxalis can do it. It's amazing how fast those roots can get down into where they need to. And that one plant will pull out just so easily or, you know, half a second with a hoe will take care of it. But none of these, whether you're using a pesticide or not, you know, an herbicide or not, none of these are do it once and walk away. You have to monitor. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore.
1: And Lois Richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California.